Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Crooked Conversations are brought to you by Blue Bottle Coffee. Nothing compliments a crisp winter morning quite like a cup of coffee, but not just any coffee. I'm talking about delicious, flavorful coffee that'll change the way you look at coffee. Certainly will make you say the word coffee a fair number of times. I, I don't know how I look at coffee right now. How do you look Lovingly. at coffee? Lovingly. Lovingly? Yeah. Blue Bottle Coffee provides the most delicious coffee in the world right to your door. One sip of Blue Bottle Coffee will make you realize that you've been drinking subpar coffee your entire mm. life. After trying Blue Bottle Coffee for the first time, I can honestly say there's coffee. And there's Blue Bottle Coffee. What's the difference? For starters, Blue Bottle Coffee has an insane dedication to coffee. They search the planet far and wide, all right, to secure exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world to source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee there is. And nobody takes freshness as seriously as these, as these bozos at Blue Bottle. They, that's why they... Is Blue Bottle a deli in Manhattan? <laughs> they That's why they roast and ship your coffee beans with 48 hours. 48 hours! Think about a little time that is, all right? Huh? Listen, thank you for auditioning for The Sopranos. I don't know that you fit for this <laughs> Excuse part. me. This is not, this is, you're being unfair. This is Jewish. This isn't Italian. Uh, the food is worse. Um, <laughs> worried about flavor? Don't be. <laughs> Take Blue Bottle Coffee's match quiz to find Forget the perfect coffee just for you. From blends to espresso to single origins. What's a single origin? It's know. a coffee from one little place. Single origin coffee. I'm sick of these coffees that come from multiple locales. <laughs> <laughs> Blue Bottle Coffee has it all. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Favreau, and today I am very lucky to have two of my kindest and most brilliant friends with us. Samantha Power, who served as Barack Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, and Cass Sunstein, who is one of America's top legal scholars, most prolific authors, and Samantha's husband, not necessarily in that order. Uh, we are here today to answer the question that Cass poses in the title of what I'm pretty sure is his 500th book this year, <laughs> Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America. Um, so, guys, welcome. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. It's good to have you both. Thank you so much. Um, you. Hey, Samantha, how are you? Very excited to be here. Excellent. Um, so, I want to talk about all this. The book includes a series of fascinating essays from a bunch of really smart people about lessons of history, how democracies crumble, how propaganda works, the role of our institutions. And I know each of you has contributed an essay as well. But I want to start with your own personal views on the state of our politics over the last year. I mean, in all the years that we've worked together from, you know, door knocking in Iowa together uh, through the Obama White House, you know, I've always looked to the two of you for advice on, on life and politics. And I realized that since the election, I haven't actually had a chance to really talk to you guys about what the fuck happened. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll start with you, Cass. Tell me about what you were thinking in the days after Trump was elected and how that thinking has evolved over the past year. I guess I was thinking, how could we all have been so wrong? Uh, how could everything have misfired so badly? 
And uh, I was thinking, of course, that all the numerical predictions were much more by my lights upbeat than what actually happened. But also I was thinking that there's a lot of America to which, you know, my favorite people hadn't adequately spoken. And uh, what actually did we miss, not just like not knowing stuff, but by not listening to people, not the majority, the plurality of people, of course, in the sheer numbers, uh, Hillary Clinton got more votes, but Donald Trump got a lot of votes. So I thought something was missed. And I guess over the last year, um, the thought is that there's a lot of people out there who are, you know, incredibly patriotic and good Americans, and uh, they don't have hate in their hearts, and they feel that they've been uh, overlooked or treated with disrespect or in some way humiliated by their leaders. And that's something that I think President Obama was very alert to and and good about. But uh, people like the three of us who worked for him, at least yours truly, didn't think enough about how other people, not President Obama, and here I include Secretary Clinton, for whom I have a lot of admiration, but uh, she, at least in her campaign, didn't uh, uh, connect with those people and uh, reflect an understanding of what they were feeling. Sam, what about you? Well, on election night, I was... um so confident about uh, how things were going to turn out that in my capacity as America's representative at the United Nations, I decided to invite all the women ambassadors from the UN, of whom there aren't that many, 37 at the time out of 193 countries. And I thought, you know, what a, what an occasion to, um, to show off American soft power, you know, as we shatter this glass ceiling and as Secretary Clinton, you know, uh, wins this election, according to all the polls, that seemed the most likely result. I invited Madeleine Albright, our first woman secretary of state, uh, to my apartment, along with these women ambassadors. I invited Gloria Steinem, who was an icon to all of these women. And then we all together watched the results unfold. Um, And, you know, one thought, of course, is about the work that we had done through diplomacy, um, whether on climate or on Ebola or on ISIS or on the Iran deal or on Cuba. I mean, there was just so much. And, of course, you have thoughts about that. But above all, you think about the people you work with, Muslim Americans and Hispanic Americans and African Americans and women and people with disabilities, all these people who've been denigrated in the campaign. And, you know, by the time I had gotten over my shock, I had to think about facilitating a transition to my successor and ensuring that my team of civil servants and foreign servants, um, you know, felt that they had direction so that we handed the baton off in as professional and patriotic a way as we could. And uh, as I, I thought that in my leadership role, I had an important role to play potentially in consoling people who might, you know, feel as though this was not going to be an inclusive administration and to try to encourage them to stay the course. And turned out they basically consoled me. You know, my, we had a town hall a couple days after the election and my diplomats just stood up and said, look, we work for George W. Bush. We work for Barack Obama. We serve this country. We serve the American people. And we are so excited, given how little foreign policy expertise there seems to be in his inner circle, uh, to offer our best recommendations for how to proceed on a range of national security issues. And I was like, whoa, these people are incredible. Unfortunately, here we are now, these months later, a year later, um, 
And these are the very people who've been denigrated as the deep state, ridiculed, you know, described as Obama holdovers. And so the very people that I actually was able to to find consolation in have unfortunately been marginalized. Um, and so that's very much in keeping with as bad as we thought it was going to be on the morning after. In many ways, it has just been so much worse. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this moment, Cass, like you, where, you know, first I thought, how could we have been so wrong? How could we have missed this? But then at some point, I started thinking back and I was like, you know, we of all people who worked on Obama or helped Obama in 2008 and ran this campaign of change and ran this campaign that was sort of predicated on the belief that there is this anger out there and frustration with the way that Washington is and the fact that Washington hasn't responded to the needs of the American people and that that anger and frustration goes beyond party, that, it, that Bush was a bad, terrible president, but it went beyond Bush. And that was sort of the crux of our campaign against Hillary Clinton in the primary and then against John McCain in the general election. And I was like, if there's anyone who should have seen that there were larger mm. structural forces in this country that could have given rise to a character like Donald Trump, it should have been us. Um, and then I, and so I guess I'm trying to wonder like what happened over the eight years that we were all in government that we sort of missed that. Um, is it once you get into government, it's hard to see what's going on out there. It's hard to know what's going on out there. Um, what do you guys think about that? I think that's great. And, uh, you know, in, in my job in the government, uh, looking at environmental and highway safety and, uh, passenger protections on the airlines and so much you're kind of staring at details and thinking, is this going to help people? And maybe they'll never see it helping them, but the air is going to be cleaner or uh, the, the water in the United States is going to be cleaner and people aren't going to get sick, but they're not going to know that. They're living their lives and they're not sick. And so if you're just focusing on the details, I guess, for some of us, you're you're not thinking about what are people actually experiencing in their days. And the disconnect sometimes, I think, between the act of governing and the act of um, of listening hard is, uh, at least for some people, that's that disconnect is serious. And you're right that President Obama, you know, big admirer of his, of course, and I think he he got this. But I think a lot of Democrats, uh, including a lot of people who worked for him or tried to help causes that are associated with him, uh, get this a lot better today than they did uh, at the uh, in the election months. I also think, John, it's it's you know sometimes hard um, to to take seriously also some of the demagoguing that goes on on the other side, yeah. and you know the truth is. Probably the three of us on this on this call or in this in this discussion, you know, are not spending a lot of time reading Breitbart other than to see how Breitbart is influencing other people. We're not reading it for its factual content. Yeah. We're not watching Sean Hannity, um, you know, with an eye to learning about what's happening in the world. We're watching Sean Hannity now because we see that he's a force. So I think if you combine. Um, you know, perhaps an, an, you know, insufficient internalization of, let's call it like the dignity deficit that's out there and that sense for so many that, that you know, the world is passing them by or that the, their better days are behind them with something 
that we are not ourselves, you know, consumers of, which is fear-mongering and um, otherization, you know, where you're looking not only to lament your predicament, but to blame somebody and to blame the other, whether it's, you know, the judges or the uh, immigrants, you know, or the refugees or the terrorists or the, uh, you know, any, any, anybody who's not just looking and, and having a background exactly like your own, you know, I think for us to think that those arguments would gain traction, given the America that had just elected Barack Obama, you know, handedly twice, um, Barack Hussein Obama, you know, half uh, whose, whose father was Kenyan, you know, who lived in, in Indonesia as a boy, who's very, you know, difference of background and story seems so much a part of his appeal. The idea that Pizzagate... Um, you know that that people could hear that and take it seriously, and 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 I think it's it's not only a wake up call about some of the pain out in our country, but also about you know the critical faculties that we need in a ungoverned media environment and critical faculties that need to be built up like like muscles in the gym. <laughs> you know we we need to think through you know how pe- are people going to get better regardless of what they're listening to or reading at distinguishing fact from fiction because a lot of what turned people at the 11th hour, um, you know, was misinformation, um, whether by foreigners or by um, our very own. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. I apologize for my um, cousin from Long Island who showed up. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. Post and pray, they call that method. They do. They call it post and pray, John. (laughs) ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you'll never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, John. ZipRecruiter. Free. You're supposed to say free. Oh. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire, John. It is. So one of the questions that I've wrestled with quite a bit is one of the central questions that both of you grapple with in this book, which is, are we do we find ourselves in uniquely dangerous times or have we come through worse political crises before in America um and I'd love to get both of your your thoughts on that Cass well, if you want to Oh go ahead Cass Okay so I think we've gone through lots worse um basically for the country as a whole so the McCarthy period was worse uh the civil war was worse the vietnam era was was worse in the sense that the dangers of uh the country splitting apart and violence on the streets really high uh the nixon era was worse i think 
Um, but I think we do have a uniquely dangerous time also in the sense that we've never had a president who was so consistently disrespectful of the nation's institutions. And that never is a strong word, but I think it's right here that if you're talking about uh, the media, it's, um, you know, the licenses should be taken away. The president of the United States has tweeted because they're not telling the truth or they're the enemy of the people, he said. Now, that's that's uh, that's really terrible Nazi talk, the enemy of the people. The, the courts are enemies of the people also. He hasn't used that word for them, but that's basically the music of his tweets when he loses in court. He says similar things about the FBI and the Justice Department. So what he reportedly said uh, to Jim Comey, which is, I, I need loyalty, in a way, that's the song uh, that he sings with respect to institutions for whom loyalty is secondary or, or not at all. And that hasn't materialized, you know, in horrible laws or regulations, but it is setting a cultural tone that is different from anything we've seen before, even under Nixon. And I think I would want to celebrate the um, robustness of our fantastic institutions, which have stood up for themselves in the face of this stuff. Um, but the fact that they have to stand up in the face of this stuff, in a way, it's a great opportunity for the next years. But it is, uh, uh, I think your words are right, it's its uniquely dangerous. Sam, what do you Maybe, think? Well, I think there's a reason, other than Ken Burns's um, terrific filmmaking talent, that people devoured the Vietnam yeah. <laughs> series. I think people... In the present, we have these very perverse forms of consolation these days uh, that involve going back and reading about Vietnam, delving into Japanese-American internment, you know, trying to remind ourselves, frankly, that um, we have been through these, you know, major searing uh, periods where the rights of our, our fellow citizens have been trampled, um, where in the case of Vietnam, you know, people burning themselves, you know, as a, as, a, as a sign of protest, you know, people gunned down in, in, in protests. I mean, we're going back in order to, to sort of offer ourselves, I think, some perspective because we say to ourselves, well, we came through all of that, elected Barack Obama, felt we had, if, if, you know, uh, if, if, if not someone whose every decision everyone agreed with, but at least a, a reasonable person of integrity without scandal, you know, who governed this country for eight years, that all came after, um, you know, these uh, devastating periods in, in American history. And so I think, I think we go back to sort of say, okay, take a deep breath. Um, as, as horrific as this is, as unprecedented as it is to see somebody trample the integrity uh, of the office, trample and show such contempt, you know, for the norms of unity and conceptions of what America is and the traditions of this country, um, you know, these these other periods uh, have presented major, major challenges uh, to our institutions and, and we have come through them. The one distinguishing feature, I think, of today, tomorrow, and the years after that we are going to have to wrap our um, minds around and our hearts around is the the absence of a factual um, truth-based set of predicates mm -hmm. in our debates. So again, you could argue certainly in the Civil War we were more divided. Um, you could argue even that in Vietnam we were uh, more divided. 
Um, but we had umpires, right? We had Walter Cronkite, you know, coming back and saying, at best, it's a stalemate, and that actually being able to tip the center in one direction or another on the basis of some factual understanding of what was happening in Vietnam. I think, you know, as social media explodes, uh, assuming roles, you know, that even our biggest media companies uh, have not, uh, you know, had the, the, the power and the force that, that the social media companies have today, um, you know, and where nobody is the arbiter of what is true and what is false, and where there are very real questions about what is hate and what is uh, protected speech and what is actually incitement to violence, you know, this is an ungoverned space and and thinking through what the self-governance looks like by these companies, what the critical faculties of our citizens needs to become. I think, John, you've referred to them as the guardrails, yeah. you know, that we need with these institutions. But but in the past, you you know, the, there were there were very strong opinions on a set of issues and then there were there was a shared uh, set of understandings around, you know, science and fact and things that grew out of reason. Now we're seeing the total of issues that are deemed opinion <laughs> swelling and growing and, and those that are deemed, you know, kind of non-contentious facts shrinking. And that, I think, is an undergirding challenge that that is going to be make, you know, finding the kind of unity out of this rupture uh, much more challenging on the back end. So, so that's the one that that keeps me up at night <laughs> when I think about, um, you know, how we've come through the last year, and I think, okay, uh, the courts have held up remarkably well. I think we've seen, and we're going to talk about this, this sort of new activism, a rebirth of activism in this country, which is, you know, really hopeful. We've we've seen Democrats already win some special elections, and so that's hopeful. Thirty-eight, uh, but who's counting? Right, oh, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, but then I think, like, what is, and I think to myself, because, you know, as as you said, Sam, and as the, the man we worked for always reminded us, like, we've been through worse before and we've come out okay. But what is what has changed between now, between then and now, is this, the march of technology and specifically how it relates to the way we get information and share information and, and the changing of the media. And so now we have a media that moves at lightning speed. It's fractured. It's polarized. We have... 30 to 40 percent of our population that is getting most of their information about the world from a propaganda outlet like Fox or talk radio Mm -hmm. or sites like Breitbart. And, you know, Sam, as as you note in your essay, this makes us particularly vulnerable to foreign interference, like we saw from Russia in the election. But also, I mean, it just it sort of splits us apart in a whole bunch of different ways. And what I can't figure out is like, we can organize our side and we can inspire our side, but if we really want to sort of break the or, or heal the divide in this country, I don't know how we reach a lot of the folks in this country who are like dealing with this misinformation and consuming this misinformation every single day. Can I tell you a little story? So Samantha and I were in some... Uh, town that we don't live in and we were talking to someone who was a very enthusiastic Trump supporter 
And uh, as he spoke, he's a veteran, and he has agent was uh, has, is an Agent Orange victim, and and is very sick and has been sick. And his reason he's a Trump supporter is he said Trump promises to help the vets, and he said I don't know if he's going to help us, but there's a chance. And he said I just don't think that's true of Secretary Clinton. And there was nothing awful about this guy. He was just a, a good guy who had a, whose life took a, a tough turn. And as you spoke, I was thinking of him. And for him, the, the problem isn't mostly that he's listening to Breitbart. He maybe is. But the problem is mostly he feels no one's listening to him. And there's a way that you, John, in your work in government and your work now, uh, speak to him. And there are Democrats or Republicans who aren't, let's say, Breitbart people or hateful people who can, I think, listen first and then talk to him. So if you have a candidate who is uh, not showing a kind of deep respect for patriotic values in a way that is um, uh, kind of foremost, uh, that's that's a problem for this guy. And there are ways of, of communicating once you get a, a kind of thick sense of what is leaning people to uh, certain directions. It can be President Trump. It can be uh, Senator Cruz that maybe is produced by media stuff or maybe produced by hearing um, Democrats or, let's say, moderate Republicans or conservative Republicans who have no hate in their hearts, who um, uh, aren't tailoring their talk in a way that suggests they've seen this guy. Mm. I, I think that's true up to a, p- a point, Cass, but you know, you, you're the one who wrote uh, years ago you know, a warning of, of echo chambers and... Uh, selection bias and the way in which we filter out, you know, opinions initially, but now it's, I guess, facts and opinions that don't comport with our our predisposition. So let's say one turns against or believes that a certain political figure is not of their taste. You know, how does one in this media environment, you know, experience serendipity and, and bump into information or the perspective of somebody from a different political party that you know and the kind of leadership that you're describing that kind of language that that meets somebody where they are i think it, it john's right with with 30 to 40% of people you know get getting their information in these unmediated platforms the ability to select out um, you know, information from people that you either because your parents had that view or because you you heard somebody you didn't like and and you know decided to to tune them out, uh, or because you heard somebody on the other side of the aisle that you did like and decided to tune them and their brethren in. I mean, so this is where you know, John. One of the things that gives me hope in this area is that you know, so far Facebook and some of these other companies have tried. A few different things, you know, tagging things, uh, you know, now introducing more transparency about, let's say, the sources of their revenue or the sources of their ads, for example. Certainly, social media users a, a year plus after Russian interference and, you know, and and sort of Breitbart lies together, you know, put a lot of misinformation into the ether with all of the coverage that has existed, including of the various investigations you know, social media users, I'm certainly a more vigilant social media user than I was a year and a half ago. Um, 
Uh, and I, you know, would have thought of myself as visual as vigilant back then, but I just didn't realize just how much, how many robots were were generating the content that I was looking at on social media. So, in some ways, we could give ourselves a little bit of a break. I mean, on, and this is also a bit of an indictment. It, it's actually quite recent that that you know people have really turned their their minds and their resources to thinking through this question like we were we were collectively and certainly the companies were super complacent and motivated by you know how to make the company bigger and not uh, much to do with the, the the state of our democracy or thought that making the company bigger would necessarily advance uh, the health and welfare of our democracy like so into a kind of triumphalist narrative well that's gone. And, you know, is this really going to be the only problem that super smart, you know, technical and, you know, humanist people who throw their their time and money and ingenuity to can't solve? You know, I have to believe that that even though we haven't cracked the code so far, that we're going to find some way out of this. But it is – it does undergird – so many of the other uh, the other challenges we it's sort of like the bottom of the pyramid you know if we yeah. if, the, if the foundation remains this fissured you know and this contested then what can I ask you a question did the two of you get maybe nine thousand seven hundred luggage ads in the last few days on Facebook or is that because I happened to look at three luggage ads myself <laughs> and they kind of noticed that. Or did everyone get that 9,000? Did not get those luggage hats. Uh-oh. Nor did I. Okay, that's a point for your concern, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we always talk about that here. It's like, you know, Facebook, who, you know, they've been trying to tell us like, no, 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 this doesn't really have that much of an influence. It was only this much money spent. It was only this many ads. And it's like, oh, so this is a company that is now telling us <laughs> that um, ads... And persuasive messengers don't have influence and don't persuade, yet that's pretty much the business model. Right. <laughs> and, and, and when they say it, uh, they're hoping that there's an echo chamber where none of the people who buy their ads are listening to their, <laughs> <laughs> to their evidence-based claims that right. ads uh, don't really work. But look, I mean, I, I, I think we can, you know, yell about Facebook and pressure these companies to do better. Um, you know, the other alternative is an actual regulatory structure at some point for some of these companies because you know as much as they don't like thinking of themselves as media companies but they like to think of themselves as platforms they are media companies they are how people are getting their news but i think there's also what we were just talking about like for this to work it requires an engaged informed citizenry and so we all have to take some responsibility too because a lot of there's a lot of people who just aren't you know, they aren't as selective or as careful as other people in how they find their news, how they consume their news. And, you, you know, you can't always blame them. People are busy. They're working multiple jobs. They're just trying to stay afloat here. And, you know, how do we make sure that we have, you know, a country where people are, you know, watching out for this stuff? Yes. So there's individuals, there's information providers, and then there's the platforms themselves. And Mm -hmm. uh, the platforms at Facebook in particular, you know, they've tried a few things on their newsfeed to counteract this problem. And the fact that they have tried more than one thing, that's extremely positive. And the hope is, you know, you can algorithm people. Algorithm isn't a verb yet. It should be. You can algorithm people into a little cocoon of, you know, Breitbartism or Sandersism where they're just seeing their own stuff. Uh, 
and they know enough to be able to do that. Or you can do a news feed, and here are just two ideas. Uh, Samantha's word is serendipity. You can have something where you know there's just serendipitous provision of stuff. So you're a supporter of Politician X, but you're going to see some stuff that Politician X doesn't like very much. And all of us have had moments where we see something that doesn't fit with what we usually think. And it might be a topic. It might be about a country. It might be a point of view. And we think, oh, gosh. And that might change our view, or maybe on that issue, it might change our, our whole life. And they can do that with by make, getting serendipity in there. So if the instruction was for social media providers, go big on serendipity or have a thought experiment. What would you do if you did that? Then you could see something that would be real progress. Or here's another idea. Go big on lots of views, not like lots of clicks, but lots of different viewpoints so that the, you're not algorithmed into, you know, this is the person who thinks Star Wars is really the only important thing. And the only thing you need to focus on is who actually is a Sith Lord. And I'm getting a little exotic here. I understand that. <laughs> but uh, they can do that. But instead of doing that, just provide you with lots of different points of view and not only about Star Wars. So if you're a Donald Trump supporter, let's say, you could see stuff from lots of different points of view that are not, you know, um, substanceless accusations to the effect that maybe his hair isn't perfect or something, but substantiveless <laughs> accusations about something unimportant, but something that's substantive and real, and then and that can from which people can learn things. So that expansion, expanding people's horizons is something that's completely doable technologically, but the direction in which the algorithms have been pointing until the very recent past is exactly the opposite. It's horizon narrowing. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Everlane. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? Not now I wouldn't. Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> but the rest <laughs> of us wouldn't. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you the real cost so you know you're never overpaying. I got a box full of Everlane stuff and it's awesome. I really like it. Everlane's part of my repertoire now. Yeah, so. I got some jeans. You got some jeans. John got some jeans. I got some tees and some jeans. Tees and jeans. And a sweater. And I didn't even ask for that sweater. They just sent me a sweater. And I'm going to try it on. See how it goes. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. Check out the Cashmere Crew, the 100% human tea, or the Twill Weekender bag. Do they make the tea out of humans? What does that mean? Oh, that's weird. 100% human tea. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, it's like that? a Buffalo Bill tea? Buy and find out. That's everlane.com <laughs> slash crooked convos. Everlane.com slash crooked convos. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sam, you just gave this fantastic lecture at Stanford uh, called Resistors in Dark Times. Would you talk a little bit about that lecture and sort of your, your, the thought process that went into uh, writing it? Absolutely. Um, 
Well, I have noticed um, that notwithstanding the incredible outpouring domestically of people getting involved in politics for the first time or young people listening to Pod Save America and, you know, seeking your direction, John, and, and those of, uh, you know, Tommy and Dan and John about where to go, you know, women taking up the the baton and and throwing making themselves vulnerable by by going back to where they went to high school and running for office. I mean, there's this incredible outpouring on the one hand, and yet of course, people are many people that I know and you know are are very unhappy and very worried. Um, there's a reason that 1984, George Orwell's 1984 is back on the bestseller list. There's a reason that Cass has done a book called Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America. Um, uh, This is not a book he probably would have thought to do two years ago, um, uh, posing these questions. And there's a a deep unease. And even people who are activated, I think, have this sensation, or I speak for myself, uh, that, that sort of nothing we do is commensurate to the prospect of deporting dreamers. You know, nothing we do is commensurate to pulling out of the Paris Treaty, uh, you know, when member states of the United Nations are sinking underwater and when whole American cities are overrun, like like nothing that some mayor does or some governors or some activists do. And so we just we, – the problem of Trump and what Trump does uh, next to anything that any of us can do as individuals – that gap is demoralizing, even if we look and see that 38 special elections, you know, have been flipped from Republican to Democrat, even as we see, um, you know, the courts defend DACA and, you know, transgender people serving in our military, even as we hail our institutions, hail our activism. So what I decided to do was to go back to other dark periods along the lines of what we did in the beginning of this conversation, you know, look at Japanese-American internment, look at McCarthyism, look at the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And instead of looking at the at the bleak, you know, federal government actions or lack of action in the case of the AIDS epidemic and the Reagan administration, to look at people who notwithstanding these big, huge harms inflicted from above, stood up and didn't make huge change by standing up, but did their part and and began to turn but very, very slowly. And in, in their time, they would have thought, you know, not even successfully. But, but if you look back, you know, began to turn the tide of public opinion and show that resistance was possible. So some examples here, you know, when, when Japanese Americans were interned, when FDR, one of our great presidents, you know, signed this completely hateful and unjustified um, executive order requiring Japanese Americans to be interned, one of the consequences of that was that high school and college students had to be interned and had to give up their education. And so a group of Americans came along and decided, you know what, this is bullshit. (laughs) You know, these are young people. They're not a threat. There's no, even though Roosevelt justified his internment policy uh, under the rubric of military necessity in the wake of Pearl Harbor, there was no evidence that Japanese Americans uh, constituted a threat. Eleanor Roosevelt, by the way, disagreed with her husband and with the, with the policy of the administration um, and was very sympathetic also to the plight particularly of these young people along, of course, with their parents and others who were interned. But a bunch of Americans came along and said, you know, this is bullshit. We have to find a way to ensure that even if we can't save everybody and we can't uh, ensure that the, the rights of these people are protected when public opinion is massively tilted uh, against 
Japanese Americans, notwithstanding the fact that they've done nothing wrong. So we can't solve this whole problem, but let's see if we can just take a subset of this problem and find a way to move these Japanese Americans from the, the, the Western coast into the interior of the country so they can go to college. And, and sure enough, and it was churches banding together, just private citizens, uh, you know, if they succeeded in convincing a university, you know, in the heart of, of America to take a Japanese American, they then had to go and try to find some sympathetic bureaucrat uh, in Washington to provide, you know, basically travel papers for people to move from these camps. Then they had to convince Japanese Americans to leave their families and their parents and grandparents in these camps and actually leave and, and invest in the idea that America was a place where they could build their future. That was hard. And yet, while the internment, again, is one of the ghastly chapters of our history, 4,000 young people were placed because of the activism and the relentlessness of people who just wouldn't let it die. The other example I use is from the McCarthy period. It's so hard to remember now how hard it was for everything from actors and Hollywood producers, you know, to teachers, educators, everyone to, to, to stand up and defend freedom of association and freedom of belief. People were just cowed. It was terrifying. I had people no idea getting arrested. it was that bad. When it was, was it's hard, right? And because we're in our own bleak period, it's, it's hard to remember just how terrified people were. And yet uh, the head of the University of Chicago, uh, Hutchins, uh, decided that he was not going to go along with, you know, buying into the premise that what you believed was itself disqualifying, that you, you know, that you shouldn't, he was basically saying you shouldn't have to take a loyalty oath. This is American. This is America. And and so what he did when summoned before one of these committees is he said, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not buying into the premise. Like my my teachers, my students are going to get to believe what they want to believe. They're going to get to associate in the way that they want to associate. You know, other elite universities. You had university presidents saying, you know, there will not be a witch hunt because there are no witches here. There are no communists on our campus. Um, and what Hutchins did in standing up is he created a space then for his faculty and his students to stand with him. He showed the way that you could actually stand up to these guys. And the whole effort in Illinois, which was like a, a sort of subsidiary of the national effort of the House Un-American Affairs Committee, fell apart. And then the last example, uh, just because it is, I think, really heartening to go back and see these, again, modest examples of people defying the odds and just taking matters into their own hands, involve the AIDS epidemic. People don't remember, again, that Ronald Reagan didn't even say the word AIDS, you know, till 1987, when tens of thousands of people had already been infected and so many people were dying and, and loved ones just watching in despair, not only as their, as their most beloved, um, you know, companions were, were passing away, but as the government was refusing even to talk about it, to allocate funding, to test drugs, to invest at all in finding a solution. And so what a, a group of activists um, led by, you know, f famously by, by Larry Kramer did was they decided, look, the only way we're going to be able to battle this bureaucracy that's in complete denial and that frankly doesn't care about uh, the LGBT community at all and indeed, you know, in some churches are saying that this is, you know, they had it coming in effect. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to make ourselves expert. We're going to have to master the FDA drug approval process. We're going to have to understand the science of HIV and the new drugs that, that are used to, to, to bring down viral counts. You know, we're going to basically just have to make us more expert uh, than the bureaucrats and even than the scientists 
um, who are channeling resources away from the kinds of investments we need. And so it's just incredible that, that these people who had no expertise basically became masters of this subject matter. They combined that with, you know, protests and um, you know, making life uh, very difficult, shutting down the stock exchange and, and doing other things in very high-profile ways to show that the pharmaceutical companies weren't doing enough and nor was the government. But what they did was they showed that there was a pathway. They showed that if you made these investments, you actually could save lives. And, and they, they built, they made a case to a broader public beyond their own community. And so in each of these examples, none of the, the things that were being done solved AIDS or, or got rid of Joseph McCarthy or ended the Japanese-American internment. And each of the individuals involved felt that what they were doing was incommensurate. But when we look back, we see that they sort of lit a spark and that they helped individuals in the here and now. And each of us has it within our power, whether it's, you know, to offer assistance to DACA people who are who are living, you know, at the basically at the barrel of a gun right now, you know, to help refugees who are coming into this country but have never felt more welcome uh, you know, just to get involved in the next special election and go help Lamb in Pennsylvania, you know, here before March 13th. I mean, whatever the the, the small thing is that we can do, it's never going to feel enough because Trump has that pulpit. He has the resources behind him. He has his, his universe of enablers. But this is how change comes. It doesn't, you know, big problems are not always met with big solutions. They're usually met with these increments. Do, do you think that it is more difficult today for people, especially young people, to sort of overcome, I mean, this is a problem we dealt with when Obama started running for president, to overcome this cynicism um, that nothing, nothing I do matters, nothing I can do matters, the problem seems so big. And one of the, again, one of the differences today is that there's sort of this like, everyone has sort of attention deficit disorder now, the news cycles come every 10 minutes, and like I remember thinking when we won in Virginia, I'm like, this is this is amazing. We won in Virginia. We, you know, totally a huge margin. And like this is gonna lift everyone's spirits for a while and things are gonna be different now. And then, you know, that news cycle and the memory of winning in Virginia ends up being wiped away like two days later. You know, you know, uh, Doug Jones winning in Alabama. We're all excited for a couple of days and then we're back to being oh so depressed and you know, then you have this Twitter culture and social media culture and everyone says, you know, LOL, nothing matters, right? And, you know, mm. media contributes to this as well. And I'm just wondering, like, if if we thought cynicism was a big problem when Barack Hussein Obama started running for president in hmm. 2007 and eight, I wonder what's happening now, what Trump is doing now to sort of the psyche of the nation um, is something that's, that's making it even more difficult for people to accept even modest change um, as something that they can build on uh, for the future. I I think we have to pull apart a couple uh, different, I mean, there are many different strands to that, but, you know, one is great cynicism and almost despair about institutions. And that, as Cass was saying earlier, is so compounded from the top now when you actually have these, even the sacred cow of law enforcement or the intelligence community, uh, you know, being attacked from above. Then when you have such destructive policies put forward by your government, you know, on a good day, the best one reads about in the news these days is, you know, something terrible was blocked, right? It's, yeah. it's very rarely, you know, something wonderful was done. And and so it's a doom loop, right? If you're Trump and you are kind of nihilistic and you only care about yourself, 
you have it within your power in a way to to help perpetuate the very cynicism and carnage <laughs> that you've you know that you've 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 depicted that that helped you get elected in the first place and I, you know David Brooks has had these columns lately where he's been traveling around to universities and asking people you know who their heroes are and they're you know he's greeted with crickets you know the, where where people you know no one is initially springing to mind i think at, at yale you know someone kind of after 30 second pause or something said mm, LeBron James, <laughs> you know, and at University of Chicago, showing the difference between University of Chicago and most universities, um, you know, someone then said maybe after, again, a few seconds, Steven Pinker. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, I don't think that's a conventional no. answer. I don't pro- probably either answer is, is not conventional. And, and so there's sort of institutions, and I think this reclamation project of you know thinking through because we had this 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 it's not as if Donald Trump invented the problem of cynicism about institutions right, right? I mean Cong- Congress's dysfunction you know fe- you know is is fueled by that cynicism as people don't get out to vote and put people in who you know might improve Congress's performance um, and then of course the lack of performance you know it's just a, a horrible uh, doom loop but then separately which is what you were kind of alluding to. As well is the agency issue of like, and then what does what does what does my action have to do with anything, or what can I achieve? And that it seems you know the media really does have an important role to play, and and the kinds of things that you're doing um, you know have an important role to play. You know, my little speech at Stanford, I made it about bright spots because I'm trying to address that demoralization that comes with not believing that there that there's a solution in your hands you know and remembering again that something small you know as, as obama used to say you know better is good yeah. <laughs> even small better is good and so we got to somehow get at both of these and it's going to be very hard when the person who's drawing news to himself every day is actually tearing down more institutions you know one by one but but the story of how we take power back, you know, starting in November or starting in every special election between now and November, you know, with the Parkland students and their lack of cynicism, their belief in their agency, and frankly, even though they've been disappointed so far, their their relative trust in institutions because they've got no place else to go if they want to fix the gun laws, right? They're going to the right place, right. and and so those when when there are bright spots. To, instead of just the old Fleet Street saying, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like, it's got to be, if it, if it shines, you know, we will, we, will, we will highlight that story and we will stay with it and we will not, you know, just go back to all that isn't working when, when something has broken through. Cass, what do you think? Thinking if it shines and then all those words is not quite as rhythmic as if it bleeds, it leads. So that's what I'm <laughs> puzzling over. So, uh, I mean, the points you're making are, are great. And I'm thinking, John, you mentioned the rise of uh, engagement, of civic engagement, and whether it's about Me Too or about racial justice or about guns or about the environment. Uh one of the things that I think deserves a, a bright spotlight is the um, uh, energy, and we can call it democratic energy with a small d, because a lot of it cuts, cuts across political lines. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're sexually harassed, that's not right. And it doesn't matter if, what your 
you know who you voted for if the air in your community is dirty and making your child sick that's a problem and what we're seeing now and this is really a uh, democratic um, corrective to some of the things that have gone sour is people are understanding I think more acutely than they have since 2008 2009 that their lives are in some sense smaller sometimes really large kind of on the line and that's that's a motivator what do you uh, one thing you emphasize in the lecture Sam uh, about each of these groups is that they didn't just focus on protest but persuasion that they learned how to argue that they knew exactly what they were fighting for and when they didn't know they taught themselves do you see that happening with the various resistance movements today well, I think we're seeing that evolution among the students, right? That's yeah. the most salient um, protest movement. And, you know, I think that the one of the questions when something like this bursts forth and they are so impressive um, is can they go from and can we collectively go from we call BS, right, which was such an ingenious indictment of the whole thing you know the gun laws yes and the and the and the obstructionism on 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 changing our our gun laws yes but it was we call bs on the on the whole divisive diversionary enterprise of trump inc can they go from that you know to to sticking it out and then combine the sticking it out with the mastery right um because you mentioned the add of our time, um, you know, we have it s- systematically. All of us have more of it, m- more attention deficit disorder than we would have had, you know, ten years ago, and that's saying something, right? Because we were pretty scrambled then. Yeah. But imagine this generation. Imagine these young people. You know, uh, you know, are they going to dig into the history of how we got here and and develop that mastery? I mean, the early signs are yes, right? That yeah. their early signs are like they're as you know one of them said like we're going to outlive you, like we're in this for the long haul, and we 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 want to live in a fact based universe and we want to learn from what has happened before us and so forth. But um, you know, I think on the I'm I'm struck by how many of the Democratic candidates who are coming forward in these primaries are trying to get smart on national security. Many of them don't have a background in that. Some are veterans and, and you know, have some of those experiences. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the, the answer to, to demagoguery and deceit, you know, is not better, you know, more inclusive, <laughs> um, you know, uh, false messages, right? It's, it's like we are going to be the party of facts and of truth and of of mastery and of expertise and and that's going to be a major comparative advantage i think over time um for you know for all of our concerns about polarization which are legitimate and which Cass was you know decades ahead of his time in in warning about uh you know we have an easier like it's actually if you think about i'm I'm a Cass and i are parents right of two kids like the same kids it's a harder (laughs) political message to sustain if you're on the other side of a lot of these debates, if you're actually preaching divisiveness, intolerance, things that you would never teach your kids, right. <laughs> it's hard to like, you know, in effect, you know, build a political movement or political party or political enterprise around things you would never teach your kids, you know, lies, divisiveness, uh, you know, and the like. And so, and so I think, you know, in the long term, 
we have a lot on our side, but we 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 can't get sloppy with facts. Like we 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 have to care more, work longer, uh, and be true. Um, yeah. One one of the things I I worry about is, you know, making sure or like helping this generation understand, helping all of us understand really, now that we're all sort of, you know, active and, um, you know, trying to push back against Trump is that incrementalism, pragmatism, compromise, that sometimes these are necessary, um, this is how change happens and how change has always happened in this country and not, and they don't necessarily represent selling out selling out your values not swinging for the fences uh some mm. someone who's been captured because now they're in government and you know they're selling out their supporters and I, and I feel like that is a real risk as well to let people know that you know we only got half a loaf here and you know obama always used to talk about this too we only got half a loaf here and that's not because we didn't try or we don't care it's because like this is as good as we could do right now and we have to build on this and keep going um, does that does that worry you guys at all? I think the uh, signal in what you're saying is to focus on concrete things that actually affect people's lives. And whether that's something not good is happening, let's say, from uh, Washington, which can be stopped, that's specific. And if people are engaging on the specific rather than, oh, my God, everything's going to hell, that can uh, be a, a corrective against global anxiety as, let's say, a conversation stopper and the deportation of children who are trying to do their best to have good lives in, the, in, in, in what is their country. That's a concrete thing. And to focus uh, on good things that can happen that aren't about forcing bad things to stop happening. So the earned income tax credit is a program. You know, there's no no one marches under a banner or not yet or not a lot that says earned income earned income tax credit. But that really <laughs> makes a big change in people's lives. It, yeah. If if that program at the state level is expanded a bit, and some states have been doing that, that means the children are more likely to go to college. They're more likely to. Be be healthier. And some of that program's expansion in some states is a product of activism on the part of people who care. So what I would think for people, young people, people whatever age, to focus on some things that really matter concretely, that have big consequences, and stop the bad ones and, and fuel the good ones. But John, I, I very much agree with what, what Cass said. I think that there is a worry in the sense that the echo chambers are not only on one side, right? And and you know we're all. I'm in my own echo chamber. Uh, I'm sure. Um, a lot of disagreement and, in the household, though. We should add. That. <laughs> yeah, well, occasionally we we, can, we fix things <laughs> up at home, but but by and large, you know, if you listen to people who are uh, like minded um, and spend a lot of time with them and don't get a lot of cross pollination, you're likely to move um, in a more extreme direction. A a well known professor who I happen to be married to has done experiments, um, you know, to show this that are that are really, really important um, about how uh, we go to extremes in effect. And if you combine that with, you know, where money in politics may go, um, you know, if, if you are a politician or a public servant who believes in compromise, believes still in trying to talk to the other side, um, and yet there are you know, forces in our society who believe in a more absolutist vision um, and who are understandably 
uh, turned off or or even disgusted by by you know some of what the the other side of uh, is is bringing forward. Um, you know that's that's a recipe for for absolutism and for gridlock and. One of the reasons, you know, that not to suck up to the to the host here, but that I'm I'm very struck by the the tone on Pod Save America and the kind of things that you guys are doing is that, of course, the the people who are the young people, especially who are drawn, um, you know, the kinds of questions you're asking, the arguments you're making, John, are are progressive. Um, but I think the you know the all of us who are privileged to be in public life in some fashion can be progressive, right? That is our lodestar. You know, we have a set of goals about dignity and rights and inclusivity and and how to be in in, in our communities and how to be in the world. Um, and we believe that government has a, a, a role to play on occasion, you know, to 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 help people who are falling through the cracks or who are vulnerable or or whatever. Um, but but it doesn't mean that you can get on your first try <laughs> what you set out to get and and you know we don't we don't think that living in a one party state actually even over time would be would be in anybody's interest even though it's quite tempting right now <laughs> to think it would be so um you know i think that that injecting and sort of reminding bringing a kind of humility to the enterprise and this is something that you know, our again, Barack Obama uh, did an awful lot, which is like, you know, at times he'd say to us, "Did you guys think it was going to be easy?" You know, in the in the realm of foreign affairs, did you just think that like the Berlin Wall was going to fall and then we'd be the sole superpower for the rest of time and democracy and human rights would just spread all over the world? And he's like, you know, I didn't like. We, you know, there are always going to be dark forces who are trying to get in the way, and so. You know, it's not going to be. We're not going to get these clean wins. We're gonna, we're gonna, and like he likes to say, you know, history's going to zig and it's going to zag. But are we over time, you know, moving to a more just and and more inclusive world? And and the answer to that is not that gravity is going to take us there. But but it's because people are going to, you know, feel like agents in that in that project. Um, but I, I I do worry that. Uh, you know, even in in international affairs, you know, because Russia interfered on our election, that doesn't mean we can't do diplomacy with Russia or can't even do deals with Russia. We have to do deals with Russia. They remember the Security Council; they got a veto. Like, if we want peace and security in this world over time, like we're going to have to figure out a way to talk and work with Russia. So, too, the fact that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have disappointed us and have betrayed principles that they claimed that they espoused doesn't mean that we can imagine a universe anytime soon where we we can afford to not bring Republicans, you know, into the fold to get things done on behalf of the kinds of issues that that Cass just mentioned. Yeah. So last question for each of you to sort of bring it back to the thesis of the book, Can It Happen Here? Um, Cass, you know, your perspective is informed by how, how steeped you are in the law. Your essay for this book was about the Federalist Papers and sort of the hope we can derive from the Federalist Papers about how it would be difficult for authoritarianism to take hold here. Sam, your perspective is informed by, you know, seeing democracies fail and autocrats rise all over the world. What What is different about America fundamentally that gives you both hope? We have two things. First, we have a constitutional structure that has uh, very powerful checks and balances. Uh, we have an independent judiciary. We have a legislature, which for all of its problems, 
must, by constitutional requirement, authorize the president to do stuff. And that system is, you know, uh, enduring safeguard of freedom and self-government, even under really tough times. That's the first thing we've got. And the second is we have a work in progress, let's call it culture, uh, which is unprecedented, I think, in the history of the world, which is committed to two things. The first is self-government, and that goes back to Concord, Massachusetts, in April of 1775, where embattled farmers refused to let themselves be massacred by British troops. And that was about uh, our power to govern our own future. And that is closely connected, that idea of self-government, with the dignity of every human being. And that idea was on fire in the 1770s in the colonies, and the fire's still burning pretty bright. I'd say two things also. First, um, we're a country predicated on the idea of a more perfect union. And I think President Obama, you know, put this kind of accent mark on American exceptionalism in a way that his predecessors hadn't, you know, saying that what makes us exceptional is this this notion of a quest and this um, self-correction that we are capable of doing and that we have shown ourselves capable of doing. And then globally... You know, a lot of people, of course, are despairing now as we pull out of treaties and, um, you know, fall below China in terms of our favorability ratings globally and now potentially launch trade war. (laughs) These aren't the things that give me hope, needless to say. Um, But I can tell you, and I know this would be true um, uh, today as well, that when something happens in the world, whether it's a group of activists getting locked up or uh, a massacre or an election being stolen. When you're sitting in the Security Council and there are 14 other countries besides you as America there, the only country that people are looking to to find out, you know, what do we do? Like the the, the, the sort of captain of the pickup game uh, is America. And that the day will come where that is not the case, especially as Trump again hastens the rise of China with a, ver- a variety of policy decisions. But for the foreseeable future, um, people aren't looking to see more, you know, Chinese leadership uh, in the face of you know a, a, a pandemic or in the face of a civil war. Uh, they're not looking for Putin to flex his muscles, you know, to deal with Ebola. They they just know that the ingenuity, the public spiritedness. Um, you know the the and frankly the resilience um, still comes uh, from this country, and so that just underscores the importance of rendering this very problematic period a short-lived one uh, as best we can, and that again requires individual citizens to be engaged in creating that more perfect union. Sam Power and Cass Sunstein, thank you so much for joining. This was a fantastic conversation, and I really appreciate you both uh, doing it. All thanks Thank to you, you for all you do, John. All right, guys, take care.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.